see this coming. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we're going to sort of resurrect an episode from the Color of Heaven series that we did, which uh, is no longer online. I've got to get it online. It's just my server crashed. It was on an old Mormon expression server, and we haven't really ever moved the stuff over, so it's just something that I haven't done. But we have a lot of good content there, and I'm going to use some of that uh, today. We're going to be talking about Boston Mormons and a really unique idea about why maybe Brigham Young started to develop these ideas on race. As we're talking about in our last episode, Massachusetts Mormons were really progressive on the idea of race and slavery. Brigham Young comes from Massachusetts. So why would he become known as sort of the symbol, this figurehead for Mormon racism, for uh, miscegenation and blood atonement and not, you know, not allowing black people and white people to get married and all of those things? Where does that come from? Well, the fantastic historian Connell O'Donovan posits that Brigham Young might not have always been that way, that maybe his pride was hurt later on, uh, because Brigham Young really struggled at first when he entered the principle of plural marriage to get women to accept him. And yet we do know some stories of a lot of, of not a lot, several black Mormon men who seem to have no problem finding plural wives who were white. So we're going to dive into that today, the history of the Massachusetts Mormons and, and see what that means. And I just want to give a shout out to Connell O'Donovan, whose work um allowed all this research to happen. We're going to, this, this episode is very dense. There's a lot to talk about. We've got co-hosts, uh, friends of mine, Gina Colvin from A Thoughtful Faith is going to come on and offer some theoretical framing for this podcast. And then um, my other good friend, Dr. Misha McGriggs, who is a psy- psychologist in Columbia University in New York, and also a black Mormon is going to offer some racial critiques on it. And we're going to talk about maybe why this time in Massachusetts history and Mormonism affected Brigham Young's ideas on race. If you want to support Connell O'Donovan, I reached out to him. He's such a wonderful soul. Like I mentioned in the last podcast, he's sort of hidden himself from uh, Mormon research now just because he finds it really painful as a gay man to engage in Mormonism when they are so... Um, Sometimes it's so difficult and discriminating towards LGBT people. But he's been very generous in sharing his research. And so as a way to pay him back, uh, I asked Connell if we could PayPal him. So I've included in the link a PayPal here. If you want to leave a donation, please leave a donation for Connell. And he let me know that there's a GoFundMe for him to get a new used car. So I think the goal is super reasonable. It's like $3,000. Between all of you listening to this podcast, you guys could help him get a new car. So Go to the link, go to uh, his GoFundMe and throw Connell some some dollars. And as always, if you support this podcast, I do this in my spare time. I would love to do it full time, but I just can't afford to do it. I have so many people listening. It's one of the most popular podcasts now in Utah. We have a crazy amount of downloads. I would love to see you guys throwing some financial support behind the podcast. So become a Patreon subscriber at www.patreon.com backslash year of polygamy. And uh, I want to thank all of those who are already supporters of the podcast. You guys are fantastic. You can also donate at yearofpolygamy.com. So now we're going to lead in, we're going to let Gina lead us in 
into the theoretical framing of race. And we're going to talk about the Massachusetts Mormons in our little mini series we're doing about Boston Mormons. And if this is your first time tuning in, you should at least go back one episode to get some some uh, foundation for what we're talking about. And as always, I hope you're listening to the podcast in order. Thanks for listening. And let's bring you Gina Colvin. I'd like now to set out a proposition, a framework, if you will, that will sit behind some of what we share, and that's the question of truth. I want to unsettle the idea of truth, because the truth is truth plays a substantial role in our culture, but it's greatly contested because we're constantly embattled about what truth actually is. And this isn't about whether or not someone is telling a lie, but that we have a struggle in determining the real nature of truth. We like to think that what we know is true and that what we teach is true, but is it? Most of the truth claims that we get very attached to have come about through generations and generations of prior assumptions and don't really stand up to intense scrutiny, for instance, scientific racism. The idea that your skin color determines your physiognomy and your intellect, etc., But many of our cultural ideas about race are derived out of the English colonial imperial European experience in America, and they get repeated so often that they feel true. And they are true, and that society has been arranged around these ideas. But are they really true? Is believing an idea enough to make it true? Well, no and yes. For instance, if I believe that blue-eyed people are cursed and need to be isolated from the rest of society, My basic belief might be spurious, but the practical realization, if I had enough power of my belief, i.e. that blue-eyed people are now being herded because of my idea, being herded into New Mexico and treated with, with disdain, is true, and this is an important point. While the ideas about race that existed in the 19th century might not be true, they are true in effect and consequence which means that it's up to us to scrutinize these racial ideas, not from the position of trying to determine whether or not they are true or false or good or bad, because sometimes that's beside the point. We need to look at them in terms of where these particular racial ideas come from and what purpose they serve and what has been the cultural effect of them. Thus, rather than looking at a racially motivated murder in Utah, for instance, as whether or not it's good or bad, because it's pretty bad, uh, we might broaden our thinking out by asking ourselves the broader question of the cultural and social and political context that gave rise to this particular event. What was the social purpose of the event and what has been their consequences? Now, All of these social contexts play out across people's bodies and minds. So rather than isolating individuals and problematizing them, let's problematize the the social and cultural context that gave rise to that particular event. And in unraveling this, we surface the unconscious social agreements about the harmful racializing practices that occurred in the church and may still do that we might be complicit with today. For instance, Brigham Young famously said, shall I tell you the law of God in regard to the African race? If the white man who belongs to the chosen seed mixes his blood with the seed of Cain, the penalty under the law of God is death on the spot. Now, 
rather than debating whether or not he was right about this statement, isn't it more fruitful to ask the questions, why on earth would he have said this? What are the broader social and cultural contexts that gave rise to this particular statement? And what were the social and cultural effects of such a pronouncement? And what patterns do we see occurring here? Rather than putting Brigham Young on trial, we ask those questions because we expand our discourse and our thinking out. Because what we know about truth is, truth isn't fixed and neither is it absolute, most truth. We tend to find a great deal of comfort notwithstanding and believing that things are true. Yet things are much more complex than that. And what we also know is that religious and even racial truth is a product of its own history. So it's helpful if we think about cultural truths as regimes of truth because they don't exist independent of the quest for power. And in our case, we're talking about the quest for racial power. Now we find in sociology that groups form around particular ideas or belief systems and and they will then say, believe and reproduce these regimes of truth and knowledge as long as it gives them power, however they imagine it. The problem is that there's immense fragility in most truth regimes because if the truths espoused are not true or they might lose their currency over time or their relevancy, that group that has constructed that power, that truth regime in the first place might lose their power and negatively affect the group. And this is what has put the LDS church in a double bind. Historically, they held two particular racial truth claims that whites were superior to blacks because it served a particular social function of the day, which we'll talk about throughout the podcast. And these social, so-called social and racial truth regimes that were promulgated tend to get echoed in contemporary Mormonism in some spaces when they all came from somewhere and probably not God. So we're hoping you'll stick with us as we tell some amazing and frightening and shocking and wonderful stories from Mormonism's racial history, but that you hold these stories critically, constantly asking yourself, what were the social and cultural systems that gave rise to these events? And what does this mean in terms of my own racial ideologies today? The early 1840s were a time of growing tension between Mormon and non-Mormon settlers in Hancock County, Illinois. In April of 1839, Joseph Smith would have escaped from a Missouri jail where he was being held on a variety of charges, mostly treason, and he would have arrived in northwestern Illinois near the Mississippi River. Now, a lot of Mormons were already gathering there, and soon a new city called Nauvoo would be established and would sort of become the magnet for Mormons from all over the U.S., well, at least the eastern U.S., Canada, and Europe. By 1844, Nauvoo had a population of 12,000 people, and it's said to have rivaled Chicago, which was the largest city in the state of Illinois. And as the Mormons grew and grew and Nauvoo grew, This didn't sit well with a lot of people in the county. Having Mormons have this much power was dangerous. The Mormons were strange. They had strange ideas. They had a strange new book. And there were lots of rumors about the Mormons. Rumors of strange sexual practices, weird rituals, and violence. In 1841, Thomas C. Sharp of Warsaw, Illinois, organized an anti-Mormon political party. And he began publishing these editorials that were really strongly lashing out at Mormons in his paper, which he called the Warsaw Signal. 
And he would often challenge Joseph Smith's sort of concentration of power. And he was really, really nervous about the Nauvoo Legion, which was a Mormon military force that was growing. He also made a lot of accusations of Mormon land speculation, which was definitely happening. Of course, Joseph Smith had been running with a character named John C. Bennett, who had become disenchanted with the church. And John C. Bennett began publishing charges that Joseph Smith was practicing polygamy. Now, of course, John C. Bennett would be a hypocrite because John C. Bennett was trying to practice polygamy as well. As all of this is happening, everything starts to escalate in 1843. Joseph Smith is arrested by deputies to face some charges, some previous charges in Missouri. The Nauvoo Legion comes and rescues him, and they adopt an ordinance authorizing review by the mayor of all legal processes from outside the city. This really alarms everyone around them. Basically, what the city government in Nauvoo says is, now if there are any charges, we're going to be in control of that, which means Mormons are going to be in control of it. And it really inflames this anti-Mormon sentiment. A lot of people began complaining that Joseph Smith was above the law, and they weren't wrong. In the spring of 1844, tensions spill over into violence. In May, a group of about 300 dissenting Mormons who are organized under former Mormon William Law start holding meetings and they voice their outrage of Joseph Smith and these rumors of polygamy and corruption in the government. They complain that Nauvoo is becoming a theocracy and Joseph Smith is running things and changing on a whim whatever the new doctrine is he's going to make a law about and his whole army of people are going to follow. For these people who had been Mormons, who had tried this and it didn't work, they'd been burned by Mormonism, They can't take it anymore, so they hold these meetings. They wanted to repeal the Nauvoo Charter, which was sort of this document that empowered Nauvoo to exercise, the city officials of Nauvoo to exercise legal authority. So on June 7th, William Law and six of his friends published what would be the first and only issue of the Nauvoo Expositor. It was a newly created newspaper intended to expose the, quote, abominations and whoredoms of Smith and other high leaders in the Latter-day Saint movement. Now, William Law wasn't just making charges on the fly. William Law had been a very close associate of Joseph Smith, and he knew some things. So, of course, this makes the city council of Nauvoo panic. They knew that William Law knew things and would publish things that could expose some of the maybe more challenging aspects of the leadership in Mormonism. So they hold an emergency meeting in the Nauvoo City Council to decide what to do. And on June 10th, the council adopts the ordinance that declares the expositor, William Law's newspaper, to be a public nuisance. And as soon as the council does that, Nauvoo Mayor, who happens to be at the time LDS founder Joseph Smith, issues an order authorizing the destruction of the papers, publications, press, equipment, and everything involved in it. He said, quote, you are hereby commanded to destroy the printing press from whence issues the Nauvoo Expositor and to pie the type of said printing establishment in the street and burn all the expositors and libelous handbills found within said establishment. So by eight o'clock that evening, Smith's orders were carried out. They go and they destroy the newspaper. They set everything on fire. They break everything down and they destroy the Nauvoo Expositor. Of course, if you're a non-Mormon watching this, this isn't just another example of Joseph Smith taking the law into his own hands and doing whatever he wants. 
Now Joseph Smith is actively coming against anyone that dissents him or opposes him. This would be a violation of what they saw as their constitutional rights. It really brings these anti-Mormon feelings into a frenzy. So in a nearby town in Carthage, citizens meet and start whipping each other up. Joseph Smith, of course, is charged with inciting a riot, and the Nauvoo Municipal Court judge dismisses the arrest for his warrant. So the people in Carthage get upset, and they want to do something about it. Smith wrote to Governor Thomas Ford, inviting him to come to Nauvoo to help sort of resolve all of this growing conflict and meet with Nauvoo Legion, just in case anti-Mormon mobs might attack the town. Of course, Governor Ford declines the invitation. But now there's, there's a lot of rumors that there is an inevitable conflict that's going to happen. Joseph Smith knows he's in trouble. He knows that destroying the Nauvoo Expositor has been the last straw for too many people. So he addresses the Nauvoo Legion, which would be his last address to the Nauvoo Legion. And he declares, quote, I am willing to sacrifice my life for your preservation. Now, of course, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram and a small group of people cross the Mississippi River into Iowa and decide that they are going to escape and go to the Rocky Mountains. Something changes with Joseph, and he changes his mind and turns around and comes back to Nauvoo, believing that if he surrenders, maybe it would prevent an anti-Mormon mob from attacking Nauvoo. According to account of Willard Richards, Joseph Smith would have said, quote, I'm going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of an offense towards God and towards all men. If they take my life, I shall die an innocent man, end quote. On June 25th, after meeting with Governor Ford in Carthage, Joseph and Hiram agreed to voluntarily submit to arrest on the charge of inciting a riot at the building house of the Nauvoo Expositor. Later in the day, a second charge is given, which is the charge of treason. And Justice of the Peace Robert Smith orders that Joseph and Hiram be held without bail in Carthage jail until a hearing scheduled for June 29th. But they would never make it to that hearing because on the afternoon of June 27th, an anti-Mormon mob decides to take justice into their own hands. One of Joseph Smith's cellmates would be John Taylor, who ended up being president of the LDS Church later on in the Utah period. Here's his account of the events. He said, quote, I was sitting at one of the front windows of the jail when I saw a number of men with painted faces coming around the corner of the jail and aiming towards the stairs. The other brethren had seen the same, for as I went to the door, I found Brother Hiram Smith and Dr. Richards already leaning against it. They both pressed against the door with their shoulders to prevent its being opened, as the lock and latch were comparatively useless. While in this position, the mob who had come upstairs and tried to open the door probably thought it was locked and fired a ball through the keyhole. At this, Dr. Richards and Brother Hiram leap back from the door with their faces towards it. Almost instantly, another ball passed through the panel of the door and struck Brother Hiram on the left side of the nose, entering his face and head. At the same instant, another ball from outside entered his back, passing through his body and striking his watch. Immediately when the ball struck him, he fell flat on his back, crying as he fell, I am a dead man. He never moved afterwards. Brother Joseph, as he drew nigh to Hiram and leaning over him, exclaimed, Oh, my poor dear brother Hiram. 
He, however, instantly arose and with a firm, quick step and a determined expression of countenance, approached the door and pulling the six-shooter left by Brother Wheelcock from his pocket, opened the door slightly and snapped the pistol six successive times. Only three of the barrels, however, were discharged. I afterwards understood that two or three were wounded by these discharges, two of whom, I am informed, died. The firing of Brother Joseph made our assailants pause for a moment. Very soon after, however, they pushed the door some distance open and protruded and discharged their guns into the room when I parried them off with my stick, giving another direction to the balls. It certainly was a terrible scene. Streams of fire as thick as my arm passed by me as these men fired, and unarmed as we were, it looked like certain death. I remember feeling as though my time had come, but I do not know when, in any critical position, I was more calm, unruffled, energetic, and acted with more promptness and decision. It was certainly was far from pleasant to be so near the muzzles of those firearms as they belched forth their liquid flames and deadly balls. While I engaged in pairing the guns, Brother Joseph said, That's right, Brother Taylor. Parry them off as well as you can. These were the last words I had ever heard him speak on earth. The first thing that I noticed was a cry that he had leapt out the window. A cessation of firing followed, and the mob rushed downstairs, and Dr. Richards went to the window. So John Taylor says that this mob storms Carthage jail. Joseph Smith fires a gun, kills a few of them. Hiram is killed. Joseph is eventually shot and falls out the window. Now, there was a local militia in Carthage called the Carthage Gray, and they arrive just as members of the mob who had black in their faces are fleeing the scene. Now, there was no attempt to apprehend any of the fleeing men. It's said that in Nauvoo, when word of this comes out, the very streets seem to mourn the death of their beloved prophet. On July 1st, the Nauvoo City Council adopts a resolution urging private citizens not to seek private revenge on the assassinators of General Joseph Smith. Now remember, Joseph Smith wasn't just prophet of the church. He was mayor. He was general. He had called himself sort of the ruler of the kingdom of God on earth. He had all of these titles. But of course, as the leadership in Nauvoo is saying, don't seek revenge, Thomas Sharp, who wrote the anti-Mormon newspaper, The Warsaw Signal, is calling the killings regrettable, but justified since Joseph Smith was a threat to their very liberty. After a lengthy and controversial trial, only five men would be accused of the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith, but they were acquitted. Few Mormons in Nauvoo were surprised by the jury's decision. In fact, Brigham Young wrote in his journal that the verdict was just as he had anticipated. A story on the trial in the Nauvoo neighbor noted that the convictions never are to be expected in martyr cases. The trial outcome, to a large extent, in the fall, a jury also acquitted a group of Mormons charged with the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor. In the history of Illinois, Governor Thomas Ford, reflecting on the two 1845 trials, wrote, quote, No one would be convicted of any crime in Hancock, and this put an end to the administration of the criminal law in that distracted county, end quote. All of this would happen so quickly, and there are a lot of reasons why there was such conflict happening. We talk a lot about those in the Year of Polygamy series. But what you need to know for the sake of this podcast is the autumn of the year 1844 would prove to be a really difficult time for Latter-day Saints. Their beloved prophet and founder of the Mormon faith, Joseph Smith Jr., was assassinated, and there seemed to be no justice for them. 
at least not the kind of justice that they wanted. Not only was there little support from neighbors and local government, the church itself would be in deep conflict. Because now that Joseph was dead, who would be the next leader of their faith? Brigham Young would have a particularly difficult time. Towards the end of Smith's life, Young had proved to be a powerful leader and friend of the prophet. He was in such close confidences with Smith that Young was one of the very few men in the inner circle in Nauvoo that entered into the very secretive practice of plural marriage or polygamy. Because of this, and his sort of strong sense of direction, and a really flamboyant loyalty to Joseph Smith, many thought that Young would be the next leader of the Mormons. The Quorum of the Twelve, of which Brigham Young was a part of, were originally ordained to be traveling ministers. And so they delegated leadership of outlying areas of the world in which they established stakes, which were basically local congregations. Now, by revelation, the Twelve, as a body, as a group of the Twelve, had authority that equaled the First Presidency. So Joseph Smith and his counselors, the the authority that they have is equal to all 12 men in the First Presidency. Now, Joseph Smith had been long working out the authority of the church, but this is something that set Mormonism in the minds of Mormons apart from any other religion, that the gospel had been restored with these keys, keys of authority, sort of keys to unlock the powers of heaven. Joseph Smith believed he had the authority. And of course, it's complicated how all this authority comes into play. Joseph is challenged at times in his life, but authority becomes a critical centerpiece to Mormonism. The reason why Mormonism is so different and so much more true in the minds of Mormons is that they have the actual real authority, the power of God to act on earth. In later years, Smith had given the Twelve a greater role in governing the church, sort of charging them with running the church's temporal business affairs. And he established what was called the Council of Fifty, and a lot of the members of the Twelve were admitted into the Council of Fifty. The Council of Fifty was mainly to you know, be his closest body of political advisors. And then, of course, he had all of these other groups, like the Anointed Quorum, which was his close body of theological advisors. Brigham Young, of course, becomes one of Joseph Smith's closest confidants and would take charge in the 1840s in a variety of capacities in these councils. So when Joseph Smith dies, Brigham Young seems like a natural fit to take over the affairs of the church. Young also thinks that he is well-suited for the job, but his efforts to sort of affirm the status as a legitimate successor to Joseph would prove very challenging because he wasn't the only one people expected to take over the leadership of the church. He found himself up against several strong rivals. Many of them had followers and supporters and good arguments for the case of their authority as well. Sidney Rigdon, James J. Strang, Alpheus Cutler, Lyman White, and William Smith, who was the only surviving brother of Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith also seems to have given indications that one of his sons would succeed him. Several church leaders had claimed that on August 27, 1834, and in April 22, 1839, Joseph Smith indicated that his eldest son, Joseph Smith Jr., would be his successor. So many thought that the church leadership would stay in the family. Except for at the time of Joseph Smith's death, Joseph Smith III was only 11 years old. It's said that in April of 1844, Joseph Smith had reportedly prophesied that Emma was pregnant when Joseph Smith died, that his unborn child would be named David, and 
this child would eventually become president and king of Israel. Fun fact, in the 1980s, famous dastardly Mark Hoffman, the forger, forged a copy of a patriarchal blessing given to Joseph Smith III, naming Joseph Smith III as Smith's successor. Now, although this document was a forgery, it is based on contemporary reports of the blessing. So all of this, all these contenders, all these different claims to authority, this led to what is called the LDS secession crisis. The secession crisis is one of the most controversial and fraught periods of LDS church history. At the time of his death, Smith held several roles, prophet, seer, revelator, and translator, president of the church, president of the first presidency, and trustee and trust of the church. It's unclear if all these offices should be held together by any one successor or if they could be split up and different people could take those different titles. There were campaigns and politicking and arguments and meetings, and with the support of the majority of adherents, Brigham Young eventually assumes the leadership of the church. Now that, of course, I'm being really reductive. We did a podcast on this for the Feminist Warren Housewives podcast on the succession crisis. You can look it up. It's worth knowing a lot about. Brigham Young met with the Twelve and members of the Anointed Quorum on August 9th. Bishops Newell K. Whitney and George Miller were appointed to settle the affairs of the late trustee and trust, Joseph Smith, and be prepared to enter the duties as trustees of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This move angered people like Sidney Rigdon, who did not give up on his claim to authority, and instead, all of these different schismatic movements are formed by men who believe that they had Joseph's authority, and they sort of take their followers with them to start their own new churches. This was a really tumultuous time for Brigham Young. He was now tasked with the affairs of the church, a role that Joseph Smith's own first and legal wife, Emma Smith, did not support. Brigham Young would spend many months in a power struggle with Emma Smith over church property. The two did not get along at all. Emma, as well as others that were still in the town or were interested in the holdings of the LDS church, called Young's authority into question while he was trying to assert it. So Young is trying to keep this sort of church together, assert this authority, convince people that he is the right man for the job, and keep his own spiritual life together. But his own personal life wasn't faring so well either. In February of 1846, Brigham Young would announce to his followers in Nauvoo that it is time to leave Nauvoo to begin their long-anticipated exodus, sort of this biblical exodus, taking wagons full of Latter-day Saints and cross the ice-covered Mississippi and head to what eventually would be Salt Lake City, Utah. That would be in 1846. Joseph Smith died in 1844. So it's almost two years of struggle, two years of trying to assert his power to keep the affairs of the church together, to deal with government that didn't want them there. An interesting thing to note is that before February of 1846, when Brigham Young announces this trek west, Brigham Young had already married 32 women polygamously. Of course, this was meant to be a secret, but there were lots of rumors floating around. Two of these women had died, so Young had 30 wives that we know of by February 1846, by the time the saints decide to head west. The February that he was preparing to leave, Young would marry nine women that month. Nine. And he would go on to eventually marry some 55 wives. 
I want you to get inside Brigham's head for a minute and picture the life of stress he must have felt as he was pushed out of Nauvoo, trying to maintain the authority of the new church through a very, very fragile balance and preparing thousands of people to head west to what they eventually decided would be Mexico outside of the United States. And of course, Mexico ends up being Utah. This was nothing short of a Herculean effort. And the first wagon train consisted mostly of saints from Nauvoo. And remember that while the majority of the church gathering in Nauvoo, almost the entire time the church had been in existence, missionaries were out spreading the gospel elsewhere. And Brigham Young would have to contend with those people as well. It was just a really rough time for Brigham. Brigham Young had so many struggles during this time in his own life, struggles that we could do a whole podcast series on. I want to focus on what would happen to shape Brigham Young after those struggles. After he and many of his wives and many, many saints would make it to what is now Utah in the summer of 1847. Young's church survived this harrowing exodus from the city of Nauvoo, and more still were preparing for the trek west. Again, we're going to pull from the brilliant, brilliant historian Connell O'Donovan and talk about some of the events that happened that, that year. Because Connell O'Donovan has done something brilliant. He realizes that as Brigham Young is developing his theories on race and sort of his really, really harsh policies that we talked about in the first episode, that there are things influencing Brigham Young's decisions, and these are important things. And so we're going to jump back and forth in history a little bit to maybe give you an idea of what Brigham Young is dealing with as he is developing these completely horrific racist policies, like blood atonement for interracial marriages, the idea that if a white and black person get together in any sort of sexual way, the penalty is death on the spot. O'Donovan says, quote, One of the most significant and simultaneously most obscure marriages in LDS history took place on September 18, 1846. On that day, 21-year-old Enoch Lovejoy Lewis married 19-year-old Mary Matilda Webster in Cambridge, Massachusetts. At first glance, this couple and their marriage seemed rather unremarkable. Both were members of the LDS Church in the Lowell, Massachusetts branch. The young bride, Mary Matilda, was from Chester, Massachusetts, a tiny rural village in the southwestern area of the state. Her parents did not marry until almost two years after her birth. So Mary was either illegitimate or one of her parents had a previous unknown marriage that produced her. The importance and uniqueness of this marriage lies in the fact Mary Matilda's groom, Enoch Lovejoy Lewis, was the son of a black father and a mixed-race mother. And Matilda, the name she went by, was white. Three years after Massachusetts repealed its ban allowing white people to marry either those of African or Native descent, this interracial marriage of a white Mormon woman and a black man ignited a firestorm in the LDS Church, and its effects are still being felt to this day. Right, so my, my theory is that I think that, that white men were particularly intimidated by the sexual prowess of black men. I think that they were intimidated by what they had heard and seen about, about the sexuality of black men. And if black men begin to kind of start having um, children and reproducing with white women, 
I'm telling you, if white women get a little taste of that, it's going to be over with. So I think that there's a fear about the white race being completely wiped out because at this time, right, we have the one drop rule. So if you're one drop black at all, then you are black. And so if you have any a, a black man or a biracial man or any type of man of color intermarrying and ha- and reproducing with white women, you will then see an end to the white race. The white race will then be no longer. I think that there's this intense fear of themselves being kind of stamped out. Talk about Brigham Young where he says, if I mingle my seed with the curse of the, you know, seed of Cain, which means if I have sex with a black woman, that the curse will come upon me, which Brigham Young is basically saying he will literally become black if he has sex with a black woman. And I think that, and this could be off, but that or stretch, but Lindsay, that that idea, if your we have the Abrahamic covenant right going on. So if your children are not white, then how can they receive those blessings? Right. So then if, if they can't receive those blessings, then in turn, those, those blessings can't be returned back to you. So I think it's, it's this secular fear, but also this spiritual fear of losing your, your covenant, your blessing through having black people in your lineage. And what Misha's talking about, this Abrahamic covenant, it's not something I as a white person ever paid attention to in the Mormon church because I really didn't have to. I was white. No big deal. I'm on the track. All I have to do is not sin and uh, not watch rated R movies and I'm good, right? But I never really had to pay attention. We're going to talk about lineage in a minute. That's important. But to your point, Misha, I was talking to a man that, a white man that had grown up in Mormonism the other day and he was saying, you know, I'm still unpacking my own racism. I know that, you know, if my daughter married a black man, I would be uncomfortable with it. But if I think about my my son's marrying black women, it's less uncomfortable. Why is that uncomfortable for me? And it just seems like this idea of colonization, right? That this idea of, you know, men can come take what they want. So they can take, white men can take black women because for centuries, colonizers would do this. White men would go enslave and rape and, you know, take black women and sometimes black men do whatever they wanted with them but if a black man dared to do that with a white woman it was somehow different why do you think there's a double standard there well because i mean in patriarchy right the men have the power so it's perfectly acceptable for a white man to have power over any color of woman but it would not be acceptable for acceptable for a black man to have power over a white woman because he is then his status could then be seen as elevated. There's no way that white men are going to allow the status of black men to be elevated to a a peer level. I think the other thing kind of more from like a spiritual side would be that, again, this white man, he's got options for making sure that his, that his blessings are secure. Now, why he, he wouldn't be able to take his, if this was, you know, before the, the priesthood and temple ban, before 78, he wouldn't be able to take his, um, black wife to the temple. However, there is a possibility that he could have more than one wife in the next life or what he, he can ensure his place in heaven, even if he has a black wife. Now, a white woman who is married to a black man cannot, her place in heaven cannot be secured through him. So I think from a, a kind of a doctrine perspective, that's what's going on. And I think that that fear, right, is so deep 
it, it's seated so deeply within ourselves, right? We have this colonizer and oppressive narrative that's just in us. And also in the church, we have that same thing. Those things, they come out. So a comment like, I don't know why, you know, it's, they don't know why that that fear is there or that um, unsettled feeling is there. But I think that that's where it comes from. It's, this is a part of, this is a part of our history. It's a part of our makeup because it's been our narrative for so long. And that's a great opener to talk about the story we're going to talk about today, which is the story of a white woman, a white Mormon woman marrying a black man and what happens with that. So we're going to tell a story today of 21-year-old Enoch Lovejoy Lewis, who marries 19-year-old Mary Matilda Webster. Now, this marriage happens back in 1846 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It doesn't really sound like a Mormon wedding when you think of early Mormonism. You don't think of Massachusetts, but these people happen to be Mormons, both Enoch and Mary Matilda. They're both young. We've got a 21-year-old boy, 19-year-old girl. Sounds like something that would happen right at BYU now. Both were members of the LDS Church in the Lowell, Massachusetts branch at the time. The bride, her name was Matilda, was from Chester, Massachusetts, which was a tiny village in a rural area. And her parents didn't marry until two years after her birth. So she sort of had this scandal attached to her name. You know, her parents produced her and they weren't married at the time, which would have been sort of a scandal. This sort of implies that either she was scandalized or of a lower class. But that's not the unique thing about Matilda. The important thing and the unique thing about Matilda was that her groom, Enoch Lovejoy Lewis, was the son of a black father and a mixed-race mother. And Matilda was white. So in Massachusetts, you have to understand that it was only about three years when they got married, when these two got married, it was only three years that Massachusetts had repealed a ban allowing white people to marry outside of their race. So it had only been legal for about three years in Massachusetts when this couple decides to get married. And they're Mormon. They get married. It's not a big deal. But when Mormon leaders find out about it, it starts, things start to go crazy. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing. It's kind of an important detail. When Matilda got married, she was two months pregnant. <laughs> she gave birth to Enoch Lovejoy Lewis Jr. And unfortunately for both of them, the mission president at the time happened to be William I. Appleby, like the restaurant Applebee's. He was proselytizing in the Boston Lowell area of the time when their little son Enoch was born. So Appleby, this mission president, is there. He calls upon the family and he is shocked to discover that not only had a black man been ordained to the priesthood, which was, you guessed it, Enoch's father, Walker Lewis, who we're going to talk a lot about later, he was shocked that they gave a black man the Mormon priesthood. But the Enoch, Lewis, Walker Lewis's son, marries a white woman. So he writes this enraged letter to Brigham Young, telling him the situation and saying, hey, did you know about this? This is crazy. Why, why are we letting this? I'm going to let Misha quote his own words. At Lowell, I found a colored brother by the name of Lewis, a barber, an elder in the church, ordained some years ago by William Smith. This Lewis, I was informed, has also a son who is married to a white girl, and both are members of the church there. Now, dear brother, I wish to know if this is the order of God or tolerated in this church, i.e. to ordain Negroes to the priesthood and allow amalgamations in a racial marriage. If it is a desire to know, I have yet gone to learn it. So about a month later, he's investigating this, and he goes to, to their house, 
to get a look for himself. And he writes the following. In looking for a brother in the church, I called at a house a colored man resided there. I sat myself down for a few moments presently and came quite a good-looking white woman, about 22 years old, I should think, with blushing cheeks, and was introduced to me as the Negro's wife. An infant in a cradle near bore evidence of the fact. O woman, thought I, where is thy shame? For indeed I felt ashamed, and not only ashamed, but disgusted, when I was informed that they were both members of the church." Where is respect for the family, thyself, thy offspring, and above all, for the law of God? So I love this. So he goes in to this house, and he was, like, telling us in this letter, he's like, listen, this this lady was really pretty. Like, I can understand if an ugly woman, you know, maybe would do this, but she was really pretty, and she's, like, wasted herself. Why aren't you ashamed? I was ashamed for her. I do think that's interesting. Like, if, if a, you know, kind of a homely or, or basic lady, you know, she's, she, you know, she would be desperate. And so maybe she would have to, you know, sink to the level of going after a black dude. But this woman, she could have had any guy she wanted. And what did she want? She wanted this man. It's beyond his ability to even comprehend, which is just fascinating. He's just appalled. So Appleby writes this letter to Brigham Young. He forwards it to um, Brigham Young. Now, Brigham Young at this time when this letter was written was just arriving in the Salt Lake Valley. And as soon as Brigham Young arrives in Salt Lake Valley, gets settled there, he goes back to Council Bluff, Iowa, what we call as Mormons Winter Quarters. So he goes back to Winter Quarters, and this is where Appleby would travel. And so they wouldn't meet until, you know, months later in 1847. So Appleby is now done with his mission over the eastern states, and Brigham Young is there, and Young finally gets this letter. This is the first time he sees it. And so he knows that Appleby's in camp, and so he was like, hey, let's talk about this. He brings in Appleby to say, did this really happen? And I'm sure, you know, Brother Appleby is like, yeah, this really pretty girl has sullied herself and had a child, and what what is with you guys ordaining this, this um, black man, her father-in-law? So Young, Brigham Young calls a meeting of the Quorum of the Twelve in winter quarters. And according to Brother Appleby, he um, writes us down. They bring in Brother Appleby. They have him give an account of the whole affair to the Quorum of the Twelve. And here's what Thomas Bullock writes. He took the minutes of that meeting with the Quorum of the Twelve. Brother Appleby relates. William Smith ordained a black man, elder, at Lowell, and he has married a white girl, and they have a child. President Young if they are far away from the Gentiles, they ought on sight to be killed. When they mingled seed, it is the death to all. If a black man and a white woman come to you and demand baptism, can you deny them? The law is their seed shall not be amalgamated. Mulattoes are like mules. They can't have children. But if they will be eunuchs for the kingdom of God, heaven's sake, they may have a place in the temple. Brigham Young, the Lamanites are purely of the house of Israel. It is the curse that is to be removed when the fullness of the gospel comes. So a man named O.H. says, has taught that if girls marry the half-breeds, they are throwing themselves away and becoming as one of them. Brigham Young, it is wrong for them to do so. Brigham Young, the Potawatomis will not own a man who has Negro blood in him. That is the reason why the Indians disown the Negro prophet, Warner McCary. So they have these minutes, and you can see this is where Brigham Young says, listen, if they mix, they're going to be killed. And some scholars believe this is sort of the development of Brigham Young's racial 
his policies, his harsh policies on mixing the seed of Cain. And of course, like I said, we're going to dig into this in the series quite a bit. But what they're saying is that if they would be eunuchs for God, that they would perhaps have a place in the temple. Now, this is interesting because in modern constructions of LDS theology on the family, it's sort of the idea that we give people that are in the LGBT community, gay people, that if they remain celibate, then they can still have a place. So it's this idea that certain sex is not allowed by God. And of course, in Brigham Young's day, this would have meant sex between a black man and a white woman. I'm assuming when he says eunuchs, He's not talking about all sex, but perhaps Brigham Young was talking about all sex. Maybe he didn't want any black people having any seed because then it would further the seed of Cain. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works with Mormon doctrine and this idea of spirits up in heaven. His term was eunuchs, and it sort of is similar to to what we see now. Some will say that in 1847, winter quarters is when Brigham Young's ideas really start to develop because before then, we're not, you know, we're not entirely clear where Brigham Young is on this idea of mixed race relations. Enoch's father, Walker Lewis, would be in Salt Lake City in the winter of 1851 and 1852, and this is where Brigham Young pointedly addresses the legislature and has them pass a law forbidding marriage between blacks and whites. Not just marriage between blacks and whites, but all sexual relations. So we don't know if Walker Lewis has this effect, bringing up sort of Enoch's case again to Brigham Young, But it happens in 1852 when he is there. And this, of course, is when Brigham Young says, quote, And if any man mingles the seed with the seed of Cain, the only way he could get rid of it or have salvation would be to come forward and have his head cut off and spill his blood upon the ground. It would also take the life of his children. And then right in the middle of the Civil War in 1863, March of 1863, 11 years later after Brigham Young addresses the legislature, he also says his famous quote that we all know, quote, shall I tell you the law of God in regards to the African race? If the white man who belongs to the chosen seed mixes his blood with the seed of Cain, the penalty under the law of God is death on the spot. This will always be so, end quote. To understand what's going on with Brigham at this time, Like I said in the previous podcast, I want to talk about Brigham's marriages a little bit. So wait, before you get into into the marriages of of Brigham, I think an important part of that statement is, and this will always be so. I mean, that's the prophetic part, right? He's making a, a declaration essentially of doctrine saying like, this is the way that it is now, but it will always be this way. As in, it won't change because the way that that his belief is that the way that God views Black people will never change. They they are always um, inferior to white people. Therefore, this isn't something that will will change. This is not a something. Th- these are states. They are constant, and they will forever be this way. This is the reality that we live in. It's interesting how things change, right? So back to Brigham Young. Joseph Smith, it said, had a way softer policy on race and interracial relationships, and Misha's going to talk about that in just a minute. So why did Brigham Young have such harsh views? Now, we know that Brigham Young knew about at least two ordained African men to the priesthood, and he knew about it for a while. It's not like it was just a few months, like in, you know, the the case with Appleby and Enoch Lewis. He knew about it for a while, but by 1852, actually by 1847 in winter quarters, he is saying that interracial relationships mean death on the spot, and you should kill this person. Now, of course, some things have changed since then, 
Joseph Smith, who had been sort of famed for his abolitionism, which is a complicated story, said to be, you know, in favor of freeing black people and kind to the black people around him. Joseph Smith is dead now. He has been killed, martyred, if you will. There's sort of this violent attitude. Brigham has a lot of pressure, a lot of political pressure. So that's one thing that's changed. Joseph Smith is gone. Brigham has a lot more power than he did when Joseph Smith was around. You could also argue he has a lot more anger. There's another important piece that I think Connell O'Donovan brings up. Now, again, Connell O'Donovan is a fantastic historian. He's not the only one. We're not going to just pull from his research. I know we've quoted heavily from it to talk about these stories. But there are many amazing Mormon scholars that we're going to talk about, and we're going to bring them on as well throughout this series to talk about it. But I wanted to go back to Connell's research. And again, I will link to this. This is from a Sunstone presentation that he gave. And he points out something about Brigham Young, and I'm going to quote Connell directly. He says, quote, As I was revising this paper last week, it suddenly dawned on me that at this very critical moment when Brigham Young was confronted with black male sexuality and seriously questioning black participation in the temple and priesthood, he himself was at the very center of a very public trial over his own marital improprieties back in Massachusetts. And this can only have had an effect upon his mind as he was confronted with black and white marriages among the Mormons. A married Quaker woman named Augusta Adams Cobb had converted to Mormonism and fallen in love with Brigham Young while he was on one of his several missions to the Boston area. Augusta abandoned her husband and large family and moved to Nauvoo where she was married against her husband's wishes to Brigham Young on November 2, 1843 as his second plural wife. Even by Mormon standards, this was adultery and was contrary to LDS practices, in that church leaders forbade any LDS man from marrying a woman who was not single, widowed, or divorced. Augusta's husband, Henry Cobb, was humiliated and deeply hurt by the actions of his wife and Brigham Young, so that he began a long and expensive process of obtaining a legal divorce from Augusta by claiming that indeed his wife and Brigham Young were living in adultery, not just polygamy. Eventually, the case of Cobb versus Cobb reached the Massachusetts Supreme Court, where the greatest legal minds of the United States sat. The five men of this court were great liberal progressives, abolitionists, and supporters of women's and workers' rights, certainly activist judges of their day. Their judicial rulings were iconic and profoundly influenced American life for decades. End quote. So Connell talks about this. Now, I, I disagree with the one point. Connell says that it was forbidden for a man to marry another man's wife. Now, of course, we know that Joseph did this. I think that there was sort of this double standard or maybe a looser standard, if you will, looser reasoning for higher leaders of the church. But Brigham Young takes on a plural wife who is already married to someone in Massachusetts. It causes this huge public trial, goes to the Supreme Court. Now, you have to remember in 1843, Polygamy was still being secretly practiced. So these accusations of Brigham Young and adultery were really interesting because Brigham Young is not supposed to be a polygamist. So everybody would have seen this as adultery at the time because polygamy isn't being openly practiced. But the court case comes out in 1846. It's brought before the Supreme Court in November of 1846, Cobb versus Cobb, and goes on for a long time. In fact, in January of 1847, Augustus Cobb gets served papers and it said she might have been a winner quarters with this suit. So Brigham Young and Augusta Cobb don't go to the court to defend themselves, but they send someone, Abraham Annis Dame Esquire, on their behalf to represent their case. 
Now, they have all these witnesses that come in, and it's this big scandal in the Massachusetts newspaper. But it's interesting to note that this is happening in the in the press. In the papers in 1847, one of the headlines is, Divorce from a Woman Who Had Become the Spiritual Wife of a Mormon Leader. And that was in the Boston Post. And now, this makes the news everywhere. It's kind of this salacious story. And we start to see Brigham Young for the first time, really being drawn out in the press. Now, before it was Joseph Smith and Brigham Young defending Joseph Smith, but now here's Brigham Young. We already know that his first attempt to get a plural wife, Martha Brotherton, ended in an embarrassment and a scandal. Martha goes to the press. She goes to John C. Bennett. They publish how she turns him down. I can only imagine that Brigham is mortified. He's embarrassed and his pride is hurt. And so to have now this other case being in the press where he's trying to get a plural wife and she's married to someone who takes it to the Supreme Court, you can imagine that having his name being thrown out there as an adulterer and having the public really against him probably both emboldened Brigham to feel more kinship with Joseph, but also embarrassed him greatly. And remember, this case wasn't about polygamy. It was about adultery. So Brigham really has these accusations flying at him. So this is happening in Massachusetts when interracial marriages are happening as well. And Connell sort of speculates that Brigham takes all this angst and sort of projects it on this on this marriage. But Misha, why don't you talk about, you know, how Brigham's attitude sort of varied from Joseph's? Well, no wonder Brigham wanted to hightail it out west. <laughs> so... Joseph, as, as we know, you know, Joseph was a common, common person, right? He came from a, a family of common social status. And so his, his thoughts and ideas were kind of the, the thoughts and ideas of the people. They, they reflected the, the lower class white attitudes um, on race and things like that. So he basically, he, he thought that, you know, Whites and blacks should not be intermarrying. He said that he would confine the Negro to their own species. So when he was the the uh, justice of the peace in Nauvoo, he actually fined two black men for attempting to marry. I don't know what it means if you attempt to marry somebody, but for trying to marry two white women, he fined them. So we have Brigham, who's like, death on the spot, I'll kill you. And Joseph, who clearly doesn't think it's great and actually, and find the two men. One of the men got fined $25. The other man got fined $5. I don't really know why the difference. Maybe it was the women they were, they were going after, but I don't know. Anyway, so he has this kind of, you know, definitely against inter, interracial relationships and marriages, but he is, you know, doesn't have the violent kind of outlook that, that Brigham has. And certainly Joseph has this fascination with all the different Indian tribes, as we see reflected, if you believe that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, you'll see it reflected in that. Or if Joseph Smith translated it, he was certainly invested and tied up in sort of this history, this alternative history that involved Native American peoples. So Joseph was sort of surrounded by that. And as we're going to talk about later, he was influenced by a lot of the tribes, including the Iroquois tribe and some of the Iroquois leaders at the time. They absolutely fascinated Joseph Smith, and he spent a lot of time thinking about that. But the black issue was a little bit separate, and yet Joseph seemed to have a softer stance on it. There was a man 
in Kirtland named Black Pete, who was said to be a Mormon. And now, this idea of Black Pete, his name being Pete, this is something that we're going to have to get used to, unfortunately, as we tell these stories. A lot of Native Americans and people of African descent or, you know, people who are slaves aren't given the full names. They're given American names, Americanized names that are sort of attached to something. So if you are living in the household of a white person, you might be uh, Ned or Sally. And if you are are a person in Kirtland, we don't really concern ourselves with a surname. Now, this has to do with slavery, too, where surnames become complicated. But there's a man named Black Pete who is said to be a teacher or priest. And it's said he didn't really have a known wife, but women loved him. A lot of women in Kirtland thought he was uh, handsome and attractive and and um, something was engaging about him. And this started to scare white Mormon men. Now, of course, as polygamy is secret, it's still not a threat. Males are not a threat to other males. But certainly, this would have upset any white American man to see white women fawning over black men so much. And of course, there, there were other priesthood holders. There was the 70 Elijah Abels who married... Mary Ann Adams, and there was the high priest Joseph T. Ball, who never married, but it was said that he tried to seduce white LDS women in Lowell and Boston. And then there was Q. Walker Lewis, who we talked about, who's Enoch's father, who married Elizabeth Lovejoy, who was the Episcopalian daughter of a black man and a white woman. And then there's Warner William McCary, and we're going to talk about McCary some more, too. He was an interesting character. He married Lucille Ann Celeste Stanton, a white Mormon woman who was the daughter of a Nauvoo stake president. And he also was sealed to many other white LDS women in this sort of movement that he starts. And so William McCary is really, really influential. He was a threat. And uh, Connell O'Donovan suggests that because he, he starts luring in these white women, Brigham Young, who is being rejected by white women in his community, is feeling threatened by this. William McCary, of course, leaves the church. His his race is in question. At first, they think he's Afro-Indian, which had a little bit higher status than, say, African-American. It was never quite clear what his lineage was, but William McCary leaves the church. He starts his own movement. He starts being sealed to white women polygamously, and he starts his own sort of sexualized version of the temple ceiling. And you can imagine how apostasy and taking, you know, the threat of the leadership and authority from the leaders was one thing, but also taking away their women and copying their temple ceremonies is another thing, and then also being mixed race. It was too much. And so Connell argues that this is where the roots of this sort of blood atonement doctrine really develops. So before we leave this episode, we'll let Gina Colvin talk a little bit more about miscegenation a little bit and to talk about how this concept is really happening in the 19th century. Why would Brigham Young have such a strong reaction to this marriage, apart from his being embroiled in his own marital problems? Maybe the question is authority. The interracial marriage was in 1847, during the time the exodus from Nauvoo happened and the saints arrived in the Utah Territory. But let's look back even further to what happened three years before Enoch Lovejoy Lewis's marriage. Young and his associates found the issues of plural marriage, schism, and the status of black people closely intertwined 
as they move toward their fateful decision of denying blacks both the priesthood and participation in the sacred temple rites. Such restrictions were firmly in place by late 1847, although not publicly promoted until 1852, this occurring in conjunction with the enactment of a statute legalising black slavery by the Mormon-dominated Utah Territorial Legislature. Inspiring Young to enact priesthood denial, at least in part, was his deep-seated fear of black male sexuality. Specifically, if black Mormon males were allowed the fullness of the priesthood and permitted to participate in all LDS temple rituals, including celestial marriage, there was the possibility that they would be prone to marry white Mormon women. This, in turn, could lead to the possibility of black Mormon males embracing polygamy, further multiplying the sin of miscegenation. The term miscegenation comes from the Latin and means the mixing of different kinds and refers to interracial marriage. Of course, this wouldn't be a concern if not for the idea of race, which is a scientific fiction or mythology created in the 18th century to justify the economic exploitation of one group of people over another. If you can render one group of people inferior, it follows that you can treat them like animals as well. You can take from them, treat them like property, exploit their labor and kill them with impunity. Now, probably rocked by the implications of the Holocaust on modern democratic states, should they uphold the pseudoscience of racism, as was done in Germany's case. UNESCO released several statements, one of which appeared in 1950 under the title The Race Question, which declared, The biological fact of race and the myth of race should be distinguished. For all practical social purposes, race is not so much a biological phenomenon as a social myth. The myth of race has created an enormous amount of human and social damage. In recent years, it has taken a heavy toll in human lives and caused untold suffering. By 1691, race mixing in the United States was prohibited, except for native white relationships, which were allowed. Now, this might sound surprising, but the same conditions have always existed in New Zealand, that white colonizers in Māori had free reign to marry, but with the same rationale as was used by Thomas Jefferson. Intermarriage would eventually breed out the brown. It was a way of socially engineering the extinction of indigenous folk and responding to the interracial marriages that had already taken place, especially on the frontier. But there was another rationale afoot. It meant that white folk could get title to native land through marriage. However, black-white marriages and sexual partnerships, notwithstanding the ubiquity of slave owners having sex and producing children with, with slaves, was part of those anti-miscegenation laws. In many respects, the anti-miscegenation laws of the United States dealt with the so-called social problem of mixed-race offspring who, were, who posed some problems in terms of where to put them. Although one status as either black or white was attributed matrilineally, it was also always possible that the slave owner for a slave owner to make their coloured offspring free. In any case, miscegenation was a bit of a headache in law and society and obviously in religion. Those strict binaries that made one group of people superior to another based on their skin colour got a bit mixed up when there were mixed raced children. As Peggy Pascoe states, miscegenation was woven into the fabric of American law and society. Between the 1860s and 1960s, Americans saw their opposition to interracial marriage as a product of nature rather than a product of politics. 
the more natural opposition to interracial marriage seemed, the easier it was for it to serve as the bottom line of white supremacy and the most common sense justification for all other forms of race discrimination. Now, as an indication of how political interracial marriage is, I want to contrast the New Zealand situation with the US situation. In New Zealand, there have never been anti-miscegenation laws, and while there might have been some social backlash for Māori and Pākehā, Pākehā is the word for white people, marriages, it's always been a part of the fabric of New Zealand society. Of course, interracial marriage is not without its issues, that is the unfortunate erasure of language and culture, and it hasn't always been plain sailing, but what you know particularly in Mormon social contexts, is that there is noticeably high levels of mixed marriages in the church. Now that's because the church was from the beginning very much a Maori church, a brown church, and that base population became the marriageable cohort for young people looking to be married in the covenant. In Utah, by contrast, where the political conditions have largely been hostile to interracial marriage, it remains still unusual. Now, this dynamic, of course, goes back in time and can be seen through the religio-political machinations of Brigham Young. To quote Connell O'Donovan again, Stoking Brigham Young's fears was the behaviour and actions of a handful of African-American Latter-day Saint males, all of whom were priesthood holders. Three of these were members of the Boston Conference of the LDS Church, and this trio, along with a fourth African-American with Mormon connections, William McCary of Natchez, Mississippi, greatly influenced Brigham Young's decision to establish the LDS Church's historic policy of black priesthood denial. The Boston Conference, the LDS Ecclesiastical Region of Massachusetts, containing about a dozen small and large branches, plus a branch in Peterborough, New Hampshire, with the Boston branches the Matrix, had four prominent African Americans within its boundaries by 1844. The first African American to join was Joseph T. Ball, a cooper by trade who converted to Mormonism in about 1832 to 1833. He was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts on February the 21st, 1804, to an African Jamaican father, Joseph Ball, and an Anglo-Breton mother, Mary Montgomery Drew. He moved to Kirtland, Ohio in September 1833, where he became acquainted with Joseph Smith. In 1837, he was ordained an elder in the church, after which he returned to Boston. From there, Ball travelled throughout the eastern states, frequently accompanying Wilford Woodruff, a future LDS apostle and later Mormon church president, and on occasion other LDS missionaries, namely Truman Gillette, Parley P. Pratt, Phineas Richards, William Walker Rust, Samuel Parker, Ebenezer Robinson, and Samuel Brannan. Ball was eventually ordained a high priest by William Smith, the second known African-American to join the LDS Church in Boston, was a female, Eveline Wilbur Teague. Eveline was married to Mormon Irishman John R. Teague, who was ordained a priest in 1842, and an elder in 1844. By 1848, in the wake of Joseph Smith's death, John and Evelyn Teague became followers of schismatic Mormon leader James J. Strange. A third Massachusetts-based African-American Mormon was Q. Walker Lewis. Now, we mentioned his son Enoch Lovejoy Lewis earlier in this episode. Lewis was ordained an elder by William Smith in the summer of 1843. His son Enoch Lewis was apparently also ordained an elder at some later date. Exactly when is unclear. What is clear, that all three of these black Mormon priesthood bearers, Joseph Ball, along with Walker and Enoch Lewis, found themselves embroiled in controversy by the late 1840s. 
Now this work can be found in Persistence of Polygamy Volume 2. And if you haven't bought all three books of the Persistence of Polygamy essays, you need to do it. And we've linked to them on the site. Volume 2 in O'Donovan's essay, Brigham Young, African Americans and Plural Marriage, Schism, and the Beginnings of the Black Priesthood and Temple Denial. This is what we're going to quote from. Quote, Young and his associates found the issue of plural marriage, schism, and the status of black people closely intertwined as they moved towards their fateful decision of denying blacks both the priesthood and participation in the sacred temple rites. Such restrictions were firmly in place by 1847, although not publicly promoted until 1852. This occurring in conjunction with the enactment of a statute legalizing black slavery by the Mormon-dominated Utah Territorial Legislature inspiring Young to enact priesthood denial, at least part, was his deep-seated fear of black male sexuality. Specifically, if black Mormon males were allowed the fullness of the priesthood and permitted to participate in all LDS temple rituals, including celestial marriage, there was a possibility that they would be prone to marry white Mormon women. This in turn could lead to the possibility of black Mormon males embracing polygamy, further multiplying the sin of miscegenation. Here's what O'Donovan has to say, quote, Stoking Brigham Young's fears was the behavior and actions of a handful of African-American Latter-day Saint males, all of whom were priesthood holders. Three of these members of the Boston Conference of the LDS Church this trio, along with a fourth African-American with Mormon connections, William McCary of Natchez, Mississippi, greatly influences Brigham Young's decision to establish the LDS Church's historic policy of black priesthood denial, end quote. So what Connell is saying is that the story that we're going to now tell you is going to also influence Brigham Young. We told you about the marriage of Enoch Lovejoy Lewis. This influences Brigham Young because in a way it does question his authority. Because, and it challenges his, his sort of male sexuality, and we know that he is being challenged in the courts with his own marriage. But there were other black men that were challenging the authority of a white man. And in 19th century America, you just didn't do that. O'Donovan says, quote, The Boston Conference, the LDS ecclesiastical region of Massachusetts, containing about a dozen small and large branches, plus a branch in Petersboro, New Hampshire, with the Boston branch as a matrix, had four prominent African-Americans within its boundaries by 1844. The first African-American to join was Joseph T. Ball, a cooper by trade, who converted to Mormonism in about 1832 to 1833. Now, Joseph T. Ball is a prominent African-American figure that you need to pay attention to in this story. So as we talk about Joseph Ball, remember, Joseph Ball is African-American. According to Connell, he was, quote, born in Cambridge, Massachusetts on February 21st, 1804, to an Afro-Jamaican father, Joseph Ball, and an Anglo-Breton mother, Mary Montgomery Drew. He moved to Kirtland, Ohio, in September 1833, where he became acquainted with Joseph Smith. In 1837, he was ordained an elder in the church, after which he returned to Boston. From there, Ball traveled throughout the eastern states, frequently accompanying Wilford Woodruff, who would go on to be the future LDS prophet and Mormon church president, and on occasion, other LDS missionaries, namely Truman Gillette, Parley P. Pratt, Phineas Richards, William Walker Russ, Samuel Parker, Ebenezer Robinson, and Samuel Brannan. And Samuel Brannan's going to come into play in just a minute. Ball was said to eventually be ordained a high priest by William Smith. Remember William Smith? 
the only surviving brother of Joseph Smith. The second known African-American to join the LDS Church in Boston was a female, Eveline Wilbur Teague. Eveline was married to Mormon Irishman John R. Teague, who was ordained a priest in 1842 and an elder in 1844. By 1848, in the wake of Joseph Smith's death, John and Evelyn Teague become followers of schismatic Mormon leader James J. Strang. And a third Massachusetts-based American, African-American Mormon was Q. Walker Lewis, and we mentioned him earlier. He's the father of Enoch Lovejoy Lewis, who got married in the interracial marriage that Brigham Young had to contend with. Walker Lewis was ordained an elder by William Smith, Joseph's little brother, in the summer of 1843. His son Enoch Lewis was apparently also ordained an an elder at some later date, exactly as unclear. What is clear is that all three of these black Mormon priesthood bearers, Joseph Ball, along with Walker and Enos Lewis, found themselves in embroiled in controversy by the late 1840s. Now, this is where things get crazy, and I mean really crazy. And to understand this, you have to understand the church's leader's obsession with authority. Remember the struggle that Brigham Young would have had to have had with his own leadership mantle? Remember, it would take him several years in the role of church leader until he was actually acting in the same authoritative capacity of Joseph Smith and then some. So he wasn't by any means absolutely secure with his authority. And in Mormonism, the thing that sets you apart from all the other guys, all those other churches that are super nice but just don't seem to have all the truth, it's authority, priesthood authority. Your priesthood has to come through correct channels, through the correct lines of authority. So in this Boston branch, while Brigham Young is busy setting up his church, his authority is being questioned. And it's being questioned by one of his rivals, William Smith, Joseph Smith's younger brother, the sole surviving brother. He was said to be charismatic, erratic, and unstable, but he was a smith. And because of that, he was respected and held a lot of sway. I wish we could devote an entire podcast to William Smith because his story is crazy fascinating, but we really don't need to center another story on a white man for this series. Still, it's important to know his involvement here. You see, the Boston branch was operating on its own. Joseph T. Ball, the African-American who Gina just mentioned, along with William Smith and Samuel Brannon, who would go on to be a prominent Californian politician, as well as George J. Adams, are hanging out in the Boston branch together, these four men. And they start to form this sort of like elite group that run the Boston branch. Right before Joseph Smith is killed over in Nauvoo, these men in Boston are engaging in their own form of secretive plural marriage unauthorized from the prophet. Now, earlier in the church, John C. Bennett, who had been a close associate of Joseph Smith, had done the same thing. He started going to women and saying, hey, you're going to become my spiritual wife. It's this new thing in this new church that I'm doing. So come sleep with me and we'll have a spiritual union. We'll be spiritually married. And of course, when Joseph Smith finds out about this, he has a struggle with John C. Bennett and John C. Bennett eventually becomes disaffected from the LDS church. Well, right before Joseph dies, his younger brother, William Smith, along with African-American Joseph Ball and these two other dudes, Sam Brannan and George Adams, start doing the exact same thing in Massachusetts. They start going to women and saying, hey, come be my spiritual wives. Let's return to what Connell O'Donovan has to say on the matter, quote, 
Joseph Ball, having been Samuel Brannan's one-time missionary companion, was drawn into Brannan and William Smith's inner circle by the fall of 1844, being taught their secret doctrines relative to spiritual wifery, or polygamy. The person most deeply affected by the imploding Boston branch was its branch president, John Hardy Jr. In the summer of 1844, Hardy, upon hearing rumors of the controversial doctrinal innovations introduced by William Smith and his associates, made some discreet inquiries among branch members. Hardy, discovering that William Smith and his associates were engaged in unauthorized sexual practices, quietly requested to be released from the presidency of the Boston branch on October 7, 1844. Under William Smith's direction, his resignation was accepted, and Smith's own protege, Joseph T. Ball, was called as Hardy's replacement. Thus, Ball became the first African-American Latter-day Saint to preside over an LDS congregation, end quote. So this Hardy guy, John Hardy Jr., is running the branch. He is seeing these men do these things. He's hearing rumors, and he says, I don't want any part of this. I am going to resign doesn't quite do this loudly because he doesn't want to go against William Smith. Now, Joseph Smith had died that summer. It's now fall. Things are tense anyway. John Hardy just wants to step away from it quietly. It wouldn't take long for word to reach Brigham Young. It would be future president of the church, Wilford Woodruff, who would ironically end plural marriage in 1890, who wrote Brigham Young this letter. I'm going to read this letter from um, Wilford Woodruff. He sends us to Brigham Young and it reads, quote, I will confess that some feeling came across me that made me squirm all over when I saw there was wrong spirits, conflicting spirits. Elder Phelps was the only man that opposed openly Elder Ball's appointment. I soon discovered from various sources that the conduct of William Smith, Adams, Brannan, and Ball and company had been such in crowding their spiritual wife claims, visiting the churches, uniting together in begging money, running all over the rights of presiding elders on the claim that William Smith was one of the twelve and that the prophet's brother, Adams, Smith, and Brannan were combining with the press to do anything to carry out their designs. Elder Ball has taught as well as William Smith the Lowell girls, that it was not wrong to have intercourse with the men, what they please, and Elder Ball tries to sleep with them when he can, end quote. So these four men are apparently going around telling women it's okay to have sex with them, and to make matters worse, an African-American man, Joseph Ball, is appointed as the branch president. Things would only get worse from there. Adams, Brannon, and Smith decide to fight back against Hardy, for sort of tattling on them and telling everyone in the branch why he's resigned, and they charge him with slander for publicly calling them whoremongers. William Smith would call a church court to try Hardy. Now, church courts were a little bit different back then. It was more of a public affair. People weren't afraid to have these courts publicly. Of course, in this church court, who is elected to be the presiding chairman of the trial? Joseph T. Ball. The court would be a big deal. It said that about 125 adults show up from around the town to watch this. Some people complained that Joseph T. Ball was a presiding chairman of the trial and that wasn't fair. George J. Adams claimed that Ball was the 13th apostle and had the right to preside as such. No one challenges them because these men have authority from Nauvoo. Now here's where things get super crazy. There's this back and forth on this trial where... 
you know, they charge Hardy with slander and all these accusations. And then Hardy, who is on trial, as Connell O'Donovan says, literally aired William Smith's sex-stained laundry and proved conclusively that Smith, Adams, and Brannon had been engaged in improper improper sexual behavior with a number of local women. So Hardy brings in like these sheets and this like um, the sheets from William Smith's bed stain and says, look, here are the here's the evidence of William Smith's debauchery. Now, of course, William Smith claims that they were from rectal boils, which is probably too much TMI. But still, you can imagine how shocking this would have been. William Smith responded by threatening anyone who opposed him with excommunication. So ultimately, Joseph Ball would remain branch president for six more months after this. And Hardy was, they secured an excommunication for Hardy for slander because William Smith basically threatened anyone um, who challenged his authority with excommunication. Eventually in March of 1845, Parley P. Pratt was sent out to deal with the matter and he releases Ball as branch president. Pratt directs Ball and several of these other men to go to Nauvoo and sort of help build the temple. And it's expected that if they're working on the temple, they're going to prepare to, you know, get take out their own endowments. Ball is replaced by Ezra T. Benson, who we know becomes a prominent figure in the Mormon movement in Utah. But, of course, these men go to Nauvoo to do this, and this just shows that they're still in favor with the church. Now, while they don't have authority say, in the Boston branch, they are going to go to Nauvoo and try to get their endowments out. Ball heads to Nauvoo, and on his way there, he runs into Samuel Brannan. So the two go to Ohio and host a two-day regional conference in Warren County. Joseph Ball would preside over the conference, and so really this is the first instance that we know of of an African-American Mormon presiding over the conference. William Smith also heads to Nauvoo, and he denounces publicly spiritual wifery. Again, this is double speak for a lot of Mormons. Joseph Smith did this as well as other leaders. Spiritual wifery was bad. This idea of spiritual wives, that is that is corrupt and bad. Plural marriage, or what we understand as polygamy, is something different. So, you know, William Smith is saying spiritual wifery is bad. And, of course, as he's saying this, he is married to five spiritual wives, Mary Elizabeth Jones, Mary Ann Covington, Sarah Ann, Sarah Annis, Sarah Ann Libby, and Sarah's sister, sister, Hannah Maria Libby. Smith gave Joseph Ball, William Smith gave Joseph Ball a patriarchal blessing and promised Ball that as a, quote, king and mighty prince, thou shalt reign and rule over many, even ten kingdoms, and shalt be called to be a mighty prophet and minister of peace and righteousness. William Smith also said that Ball had been ordained as a high priest, which would also be a first for African-American Mormons. And at the same exact time that this is happening, Brigham Young is receiving a letter from Parley P. Pratt telling of Ball's sex stuff and his, you know, sort of pretended revelations. And we know that word starts to get out to other apostles. And by August of 1845, Joseph Ball's involvement drops off with the Latter-day Saint movement, and we don't know exactly why. On the next episode, we're going to tell you more about William Smith. We brought him up in this podcast. As you can see, he's an important part of the story. And Brian Buchanan is back to talk more about William Smith. So tune in next time. Become a Patreon subscriber for this podcast. And 
Thanks for listening. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.